we're so excited. This is our third of our Sunday at six. So fantastic to have you here as we get this new uh, second service going as part of our times together. And uh, just wonderful to one day we'll see all of these seats full of people in the evening. And uh, God is going to do a wonderful work here. So thank you for being part of it and, and helping us initiate this time. Um, so one of the things that we felt to do was to do a series out of the book of Acts. Um, such a fantastic book which really looks at the, the start of the church and how um, people were just filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to go out and change their communities and to see the church built up in different parts of the the diaspora, wherever um, people were sent after they were persecuted, and we saw how the church grew. So really hoping that this will be a very encouraging time. So I'm going to pick up on the last part of Acts chapter 1 from verse 12 to 26, and it's a bit of a seemingly random passage. Um, we'll find when I read it, you'll go, what is that all about? Anyway, let's hope it, it encourages you, and we'll find some things to to encourage you out of. So if we can read it, I think it'll come up on the screen um, from verse 12. It says, um, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Um, so basically, just to explain that, a Sabbath day's journey um, under the, the, uh, the, the law that they had to live under, on the Sabbath, you were only allowed to travel a certain distance from your home. Otherwise, it was considered work and you were not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So the distance of a Sabbath uh, day's journey was about 2,000 cubits, which would have been the metric system of their time. And that, that was about uh, half a mile or just under a kilometer. So not very far, actually. Um, so if you had to do something that demanded you going further than 2,000 cubits, you were a little bit stuck. You couldn't go unless you broke the law. But as is in the rabbinical tradition, they found ways and loopholes around that. So what they did was, if you had to go say 4,000 cubits, what you would do is you would walk 2,000 cubits, say you came to a rock or a tree, and then you would proclaim in a loud voice, you are my abode for the Sabbath. You'd speak to the tree or to the rock, and then you'd wait there for a bit, like you're having a little rest in your abode, and then you'd walk the next 2,000. So that was how you got by around that. Um, there was also some other funny ones about, I think this is more modern day ones where you, you couldn't travel, but if you were on water, that wasn't considered walk, work. So people would fill a, a cushion with water and put it in their car. So you could sit on a, a, a cushion of water because you're actually sailing. I don't know. But anyway, there's all ways that people devise to get around the, the law. So... Just imagine now we've been in the situation where Jesus has ascended up to heaven. Uh, you, you could imagine the state of shock uh, and disbelief, well, not disbelief, what they saw it with their very own eyes, but just a sense of wonder and wondering what now with their lives. So they descend from the mountain and they walk back to Jerusalem. And uh, it says in verse 13, 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Obviously not Judas Iscariot, this is another Judas. And all of them were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons in all was about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Um, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. A bit of a gory detail. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And in another place, let another take his office. So one of the men who, uh, who have accompanied us all during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's an example of a euphemism. Uh, they're saying his own place, obviously, he's gone to hell. And they cast lots for, for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So... Quite an interesting little story. <laughs> I hope I can sort of unpack it a bit and maybe we can take home some things that will be really helpful for us. So let's just recap basically on the time frame of this. Remember that Jesus was crucified on the Passover and then three days later he rose again. And then after he rose again, we see that over the next 40 days, he appears to his followers in different places at different times, and uh, appearing at one place and then disappearing and reappearing. So there's this testimony of all these different believers who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead and saw him in his resurrected body. So that happened for about 40 days. And it was on the 40th day that they went up after Passover, that they went up to the Mount of Olives, and there we see Jesus is, ascends into heaven and is taken up in a cloud, and, and really unpacked that really wonderfully last week. And if you'd like to re-look at that part of the story, please, you can, you can listen on the podcast. And so we have this amazing moment where Jesus ascends into heaven, and then this is exactly now where we are now. There's 10 days from when Jesus ascends into heaven till when Pentecost comes. And this is the little 
part of the story that we're looking at now. These 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost. And this is sort of what's happening. Um, and so after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples returned to the upper room where they were staying in Jerusalem and where they spent the time praying together and waiting as the Lord Jesus told them to do. He said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive my Holy Spirit. Now, I suppose for them, they would have thought, well, what does that mean? And what does it mean to wait in Jerusalem? Do we just go back to our day jobs and hang around and wait? Um, but we see what they did was they kept together and they met together in a room. It would have been in someone's home. So if you think it said that there were 120 of them, quite a sizable, I don't know how many of you can fit 120 in your, um, <laughs> in your lounge, but um, probably they had a courtyard area where people would assemble together and they were all together praying. <clears throat> And it was during these 10 days of waiting that Peter addressed an issue that it would have been on everyone's minds, which is the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And not only had the disciples suffered by seeing Jesus crucified, but they also witnessed his betrayal by one of their very own. And that must have really stung to the core. And we see Peter referencing that where he says, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So for them, if you think some of your, those guys for three years, they were just, they became really, really good mates, didn't they? I'm sure they had their differences and they argued and they might've irritated each other, but they were on a mission together. And so it was a real sense of not just that they betrayed, he betrayed Jesus, but he betrayed all of them um, by pretending to be something that he was not in his heart. So the overview of this time is they are in the supper room and they are praying. And as they're praying, they're getting a sense of what God wants them to do and that they should appoint someone else to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. So that's a bit of the overview. So let's just look a little bit more closely. So who was involved in this scenario? So it mentions the names of the 11 apostles, the 11 disciples. It says they were women, um, and that would have been women that traveled with Jesus and his disciples. Um, sometimes they, t they helped with support and preparing meals and in practical ways, but they were also discipled by Jesus. They also sat under his teaching. And then it mentions Jesus's mother, Mary, and his brothers. Um, so Jesus's immediate family um, after all that they went through, they believed in him. <laughs> they saw him come back to life. Isn't that amazing to think um, that your very own brother becomes your savior? It must have been a really different journey for, those, for his immediate family, for his own mother. And then it mentions, in some translations, it says the brothers. Um, the, 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 the Aramaic word is Adelphi, which would have been brothers and sisters. So it meant the believers all together, the Adelphi. And it said there were 120 of them in this place while they were waiting um, for, for what they were expecting Jesus to do or the Holy Spirit to do. And it seems that Peter, just by virtue of who he was, he became the natural leader of the group. And so he begins to address everyone, as he does again 10 days later in Pentecost. He's got that wonderful sermon that he preaches from the, the, the 
prophet Joel. So what actually happened? Um, in order for us to make sense of what they were trying to make sense of all that had happened. You know when you've been through something very traumatic and a whole lot of events have just happened one after the other and you go like, wow, what happened? You know, you're in that kind of place of feeling a little bit stunned. They were in that place. And they were trying to make sense of this. And so one of the things that Jesus must have taught them when they walked and talked and lived with him was he said, always go back to the scriptures. If something doesn't make sense, go back to the scriptures. Read what the scriptures say. And so that is what Peter does. It's, it's what Jesus would have taught them to do. Jesus would have taught them how to read the scriptures, but not only just to read them for what they were, but also to understand them prophetically, to see what was God saying through the scriptures. And um, Jesus would have taught them that even though they were written centuries ago, that they still had inspiration and relevance for their current situation. And so Peter says these words in verse 16. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested us. I was chatting with Ant. Uh, it's one of those, you know, when you're falling asleep and you just have a strange thought. And I was thinking, I said, Ant, are you awake? Uh, yes. <laughs> and I just said to him, you know, it's such an interesting thought that Peter, as we know, he was a, a fisherman. He would, wouldn't have been educated. Uh, Jesus would have taught them the scriptures in his discipleship as their rabbi. Um, but the, maybe the only times they would have read the scriptures was in the synagogue because no one had phone Bibles to hand. No, certainly we didn't, they didn't have mobile phones so they could flick into the scriptures at any point. They would have had to memorize the scriptures in order to be able to quote them and to think of them. And here we have Peter, this really unrefined fisherman, here in this very difficult time thinking, what is God doing? Remembering that Jesus said, go back to scripture. And he comes up with these, for me, really remote verses in the Psalms that he actually would have memorized and known. Jesus would have taught them how to memorize scripture. And so he says, let's think about what was God saying through David when he wrote these words. And so what he does is he quotes Psalm 69 verse 25 and Psalm 109 with eight, verse 8. Not especially my personal favorite Psalms. I've kind of, you have some Psalms that stand out and you think I'm definitely going to memorize them. These two for me rank on the level of, okay, Psalms, but I wouldn't especially rate memorizing them. But Peter had, and I think that's quite amazing because at this time, it became so relevant to him. He understood the Holy Spirit was speaking through the mouth of David through these Psalms. And it says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So not a very encouraging Psalm. You wouldn't if, because if you read the whole context of the verse, it's about really obliterating your enemies let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. So I don't know why David, I mean, 
Peter failed to memorize this psalm. But, and then it goes on to say, may their camp be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. So here Peter remembers this verse and he, he realizes that although David was writing about his own life with his own issues and people that were persecuting him, he was actually speaking prophetically about Judas in that moment. The, the Holy Spirit gave Peter revelation that that is what David was speaking about, even though David obviously wouldn't have known that. And that's very often how pro prophecy works. You speak thinking that you are speaking about something else, but very often when the Holy Spirit is inspiring it, it's speaking, cutting right through soul and spirit, bone and marrow, into the heart of someone and speaking into that situation. And then he again quotes Psalm 109, which is also another one of those, appoint a wicked man against him, let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. Random and mean and just angry kind of words. But Peter realized David was speaking prophetically about Judas. May another take his office. Someone will step into the role of a wicked person who was, had to step out of the, the calling that they had. And so I think that um, it was this prophetic insight that really gives Peter and the Twelves the understanding that there needed to be another someone who would take Judas's place or office as part of the original 12. And um, in order to give the reader a bit of a backstory to what had recently taken place, then you can see Luke in that scripture, he puts in brackets, he fills in a bit of what had happened to Judas to, to lead up to that. So it's good to understand how did Judas die. So this scripture says uh, that he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was such a, a terrible incident that, it, that the field that was where that happened became known as Akeldama, with a field of blood. So that's how Luke explains. So remember, he's writing to this person, Theophilus, and he's telling what happened up there in that room. But he says, oh, Theophilus, I better fill you in on the backstory. You might not have heard what actually happened to Judas and why they needed to replace him. And so he gives this little backstory. So Matthew says, though, in Matthew 27, verse 5, it says that Judas went away after he gave the money. He returned the money to the the Pharisees, and it says that he went and hung himself. That's what it says in Matthew 27, verse 5. However, Luke says that Judas burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out in Acts 1, 18. And there's this New Testament critic called Bart Ehrman. He's a very, very cynical biblical scholar. I don't encourage you to read him. He's a he, d he just points out everything that he can find wrong. But anyway, he says that these two passages are flat out contradictory, that how Judas died. It's, it's, they totally contradict each other. But I think 
they, they don't necessarily contradict each other. Instead, they could complement each other because Judas's body, according to Matthew, had been hung. He was hung from a tree. And um, sorry, this is a bit gory, and I hope anyone doesn't mind. He would have been hanging from a tree, and so they would have left him there because of how he died. And so his body would have begun to rot. And he would have fallen down out of the noose and burst open. And so Matthew records his initial suicide, but Luke records his eventual rotting and decomposition. And so why did these two authors choose to emphasize very different aspects of Judas's death? Well, the reason is that Matthew was writing to Jews and they believed that someone would have been under the judgment of God if they were hung from a tree. There, there's a scripture that speaks about that in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. He who is hanged is accursed of God. So they would have seen when Matthew said that, they were saying indirectly, Judas betrayed Jesus, and by hanging himself, he took on the judgment of God. So that, that's really what Matthew was trying to emphasize to a Jewish audience. Whereas Luke, in this book of Acts, is writing to a Gentile audience, and they believe that suicide was very honorable, and that if you took your life, it was a very stoical and courageous thing to do. So he chose the imagery of a decomposed, unburied body for, uh, for Judas, which to a Gentile would have been a sense of the, of the curse of God, that your body was not buried but left to, to decay. So both accounts were accurate telling of the story, but they emphasized different portions of the story to communicate to their respective audiences. So that, that sort of helps us understand that little bit in parenthesis that um, why, why Luke was explaining about how Judas died. So I told you this was an interesting passage. <laughs> um, we are going to go somewhere with this. I'm just unpacking the story. So... They had to appoint someone then to replace Judas. Um, and these are the criteria that they gave for the person that had to be nominated for the place. And we read it in verse 21 and 22. It says, so it has to be some, someone who accompanied us all the time uh, that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us. So someone who had been amongst their number. Remember, there were the 12 who were specially chosen by Jesus, but there were many disciples, um, followers. They weren't the 12, but there were many that were there in, the, in their company, always there listening to Jesus' teaching. And it says from the time that of John the Baptist until he was taken from us and ascended into heaven and someone who actually saw him resurrected and saw his resurrected body. So that was very important that the person who replaced Judas had those um, experiences and could be a true testimony and witness to Jesus and his resurrection. So back in that time in the first century Roman world, uh, there were obviously various uh, religious, philosophical and political leaders, all who had committed groups of followers. That wasn't an unusual thing. There were lots of I suppose in our day, gurus <laughs> going around with their little troop of followers. 
Um, and in Judaism, uh, dedicated apprentices followed a rabbi. And uh, for the many who followed him, Jesus of Nazareth formed a very special teacher-student relationship with 12 particular men. And although the Jews were used to having teachers or rabbis who taught the brightest pupils about the complexities of the Jewish faith, um, they hadn't encountered the approach that Jesus uh, used in gathering a group of students or disciples around him. Because the norm was for someone to go to a rabbi. If you saw a rabbi and you saw him in the temple and you really liked his teaching, you would go to the rabbi and you'd say, please, can I become one of your disciples? Can I become one of your followers? And the rabbi would say, well, let me think, okay, you, you passed all of these tests. Or he would give him, ask him some questions and he says, okay, you can, you can follow him follow me. Um, but Jesus did the reverse. No one came to him and said, can I follow you? He went and handpicked the 12 that he wanted to be his disciples and called them to follow him. Um, and so the group that he chose was a really diverse bunch. They weren't from the Jewish establishment. They weren't elite people. He chose 12 that came from various professions and walks of life. And there was no accident that he chose 12. And I'm sure, just as a little fun quiz question, anyone want to say why he chose 12? Yeah, well done, Carol. <laughs> because Jesus was birthing a new kingdom, a new Israel, which was the church. And so there was this mirror, this picture of the 12 tribes of Israel being mirrored in the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. And uh, so that became why it was important in this picture to have 12 and not 11. Um, and so that's why they needed a 12th apostle. So how did they go about choosing this 12th apostle? It says in verse 26, and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They threw a dice and went, whoo, Okay, it's you, Matthias. Oh, it's a really good model of decision-making. Shall we buy this house? <laughs> yes, no. So, very interesting. So let's unpack this a little bit. <laughs> so the practice of casting lots um, is taken from a passage in Proverbs 16, verse 33, which states that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And this was a very common practice in the Old Testament for helping to make difficult decisions. In fact, the high priest was given a set of dice, sacred dice. They were very sacred. I don't know. They were blessed dice. They were called the Urim and the Thummim. Thummim. Do you know that? I'm sure you've heard of that, the Urim and the Thummim. And they were very sacred dice, and if the high priest had to make a very important decision, they would throw the dice, and then they would see what God's will was. So I know that sounds very much like chance and fate for us today in our modern world, but but more sounds more like gambling. I thought, it, yeah, I'll, I'll have another story, but it's not relevant, so I won't tell it. Um, so, but what is so interesting is that 
Um, the main part of that verse that they relied on was that it's every decision is from the Lord. When they threw that dice, it was with faith that God would speak through it. It wasn't just like, oh, there's a random chance that it will be that and we'll just respond to some random whatever comes up. They had a firm belief and faith that whatever came up would be representation of God's will. So it wasn't just a fatalistic chance thing. They really did it with faith that God would speak to them through it. And the difficulty of this decision was that Barsabbas and Matthias were equally qualified to be the apostles. There wasn't a thing of uh, this guy's sort of lacking in this area of gifting or character. They were both very equally great candidates. And there wasn't, um, I suppose it's like if you had a job interview and you think, oh my gosh, both these guys are great. I'd love to employ both of them. Uh, but unfortunately, they could only have 12, not 13. That wouldn't have fitted the kind of pattern of what they were looking for. So they decide to use this thing of casting lots to determine God's will. And actually, this is the last time we see this practice used in the New Testament for making just difficult decisions. And some scholars suggest that because 10 days later, there was this wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that because of that, the disciples no longer needed those kinds of methods for hearing the voice of God or hearing God because they were filled with the knowledge of his will through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit within them. They no longer needed to cast lots. They could hear, you know, when, when Paul says, I will write my word on tablets of flesh. I will, I'll, you will have my spirit in you. And so there was the sense of knowing and understanding the heart and the will of God when they were filled and, and baptized with the Holy Spirit. But Luke doesn't seem to criticize them for casting lots because what he's emphasizing is more the foundation of how they made their decision. And I think that's really important. It says that they prayed, they were in a place of prayer, and it says they were looking at the scriptures. And so these two elements are what form the foundation for them to hear from God. And then they prayed these beautiful words. They said, God, um, we trusting that whatever comes, you will show us which, what we should do, which of these two we should, we should choose. And uh, I believe that they prayed to God and they sought the scriptures to speak to them. And they trusted that God would, in this very important matter, help them to make the choice that would line up with his good will and his good purposes. So that's what they did for those 10 days until Pentecost came. They prayed. They tried to understand the scriptures. They were waiting for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they made some important leadership appointments that would take the church into the next phase. So what can we learn from this passage, you might be asking? Well, I want to say that for sometimes we too can be in a place of waiting. We can be waiting for something to, that we are trusting God for and it seems to tarry and we just think, when God, when 
is this going to happen? When are we going, you've promised something, you've spoken something, and yet we feel like we're in this place of waiting. And I think also for these disciples, everything was new, everything was uncertain. And I want to say, when you're in a place of waiting and you're in a place of uncertainty and you don't know and everything is new, do what the disciples did. Lean into that which is familiar and the tested means of God's grace, which is prayer and reading the word. Lean into those graces that he gives for us. You know, we want, sometimes we want to go and find some fantastic thing out there but lean into the familiar, lean into the things that he's put into you as a bedrock in your, in your devotional life, in your discipleship. Go back to the word, go back to the scriptures that he's spoken to you and don't ever stop praying. Uh, I'm, I'm reading through my devotions, I'm reading through Romans 12 and it's one of the little verses says, be constant in prayer. Don't stop praying. Just because you haven't seen the answer yet, don't stop praying. Because prayer is more than about getting the answer. It's about cultivating that deep trust and relationship and that intimacy with your heavenly Father. That's what he's after. And the things will come. That's, that's a given. He's interested in the heart journey till they come. And that's what was happening here for these disciples. They were, they were waiting you see, because waiting in God's economy is never passive, but it's an active waiting by pressing into his presence and listening to his voice. So that's the first thing I, I feel like we could maybe take away. And the second thing I want to say is that if Jesus said that they should wait because he was going to send his Holy Spirit, they had absolutely no reason to doubt him. He already said he was going to come back from the dead, and he did that. So if they said to him, the Holy Spirit's coming, they're thinking, wow, I don't know what that looks like, but we are blown away already by what you've done, so we're going to trust you in that. God always fulfills his promises. He always fulfills his word, but it's always in his perfect timing. And I think that was what the disciples, they only had to wait 10 days. It doesn't seem very long, but it might have been one of the longest 10 days they'd ever had. But tarry, wait. Don't, don't give in to frustration when you don't see something happen because God's timing is perfect and he is always faithful. He will not let you down. And then the third thing I want to say is, when we need to make difficult decisions, we can pray like the disciples did. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. We can just ask straight. We can say, God, please tell us, is it this or is it this? And sometimes they're both great. <laughs> and you go like, sometimes the Lord has a broad way. And actually, if you choose this or this, it's fine. So sometimes his will is not a tightrope. We, th we think we're walking on a tightrope. And if I go like that, I'm going to fall off. No, sometimes he leads you in a broad way. And he's, he's more also letting you experience the spaciousness of his generosity and his grace to you. It's not like he's there to kind of 
slap you if you step out of line. Sometimes he wants you to exercise your, your wisdom and your knowledge. And he's saying, oh, good girl, good boy. You've made a really great choice. And God wants that within us. And sometimes he brings us to very precise decisions um, because he's kind of helping us think, actually, what are you really valuing? What are you really prioritizing that this this choice is making you kind of evaluate? What is it really surfacing in you that's shaping your choice? And one of the things we can do to go, ask God, we can say, God, if one of these is wrong or right, would, would you close the door so that I'd, it's very clear to me because I'm, I'm not sure. Just ask him to close the door. You can ask him to do that. Sometimes you can ask God to confirm something to you if it's a life decision with a prophetic word from someone who maybe doesn't even know what you're going through and just say, God, please give me a prophetic word that will just be exactly what I need to hear to know that that's what I should be doing. But the point is that we don't have to be alone when making difficult decisions. And God wants us to find his wisdom. He wants us to hear his voice. And he wants us to, in that place of waiting, begin to tune in through, through prayer and through the word into what he wants to say into us and through us.